Welcome to the Yogipreneurs Podcast with me and Mia Jafari. In this episode, we meet Sadiq Giuliani, Senior Vice President at Emirates and lecturer at Stanford University. We hear and share insights, openings and discoveries on how decision-making is influenced by a myriad of union psychological factors and how to protect our decision-making from negative influences. Sadiq, welcome to the Yogipreneurs podcast. And what we try and do at Yogipreneurs is really combine spirituality and yoga with entrepreneurship because we really don't believe the two should be separate. And there's some amazing learnings and insights that can happen when we combine the world of wellness and yoga um, and uh, spirituality and entrepreneurship so we can have holistic growth. Um, so Sadiq, welcome. And it'd be really nice maybe um, for us to learn a little bit more about you. I and mean, you have a very interesting background in aviation and you've you've traveled a lot and you worked with all the mega um, um, airlines around the world. But it'd be nice to know, you know, what inspires you to do the work you're doing before we can deep dive into Jungian psychology? What inspires you to do the work that you're doing? Yeah, I've always been um, passionate about the travel industry um, and also a passionate traveler myself. Um, and also from an early age been interested in self-development spiritual development and you know in my early 20s um i had i met someone who was uh, who told me about young psychology and um i always found it kind of fascinating but didn't know too much about it and then when i joined lufthansa um they offered me an executive coach they gave me a couple of options of executive coaches and by chance one of them um was a union analyst so I thought, okay, that seems uh, that seems like a nice coincidence, um, and then we embarked upon uh, a journey together. So we've been he's been my coach still now for, for now ten years, um, and as a coach, even though he's coming and being paid for by an employer originally, you know, it's it's to, to be more effective, it requires obviously working on on your whole personality, and so we may talk about sometimes business topics we might talk about personal topics but it's about me and the process of individuation which is the one uh Jung talks about and i think also for me now i think the, the age of 40 is a very interesting one also in, in Jungian terms because this is really the transition and Jung also talks about the first half of life and the second half of life it's maybe something we'll come back to later so but let's say for the first half of my life i'm just you know fascinated by seeing how I can improve myself and round out my personality. And I'll talk more a bit about some of the uh, aspects of that from a maybe Myers-Briggs union typology perspective um, and kind of learn, develop and you know, be a better leader. Um, and some of the tools of Jung have been really helpful uh, in, this, in this process. So that's, that's my kind of personal journey of why I'm here. I just, um, I really enjoy learning and frameworks and a kind of approach which you know, again, it's been helpful and I can hopefully share some of the things I've learned from that with, with others. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. And I think it's super interesting that what you said, it's like, you know, you don't separate the person from the work. So it's like, you can't be like, oh, I'm going to be the best leader, the best of my work. And I let my personal life and myself drop because that we don't, it doesn't work. So you have this holistic approach to growth, I'm assuming. And I yeah, and exactly the, the, the word individuation is exactly about becoming an individual, uniting you know, it's that becoming a full person, a rounded person, which requires, under, obviously we, we have an understanding of what's in our conscious mind, but all that subconscious world, the 90% of the mind, that's the piece which, which Jung really helps us understand, tap into and give awareness and transparency to that. So this is this, is this individuation part. And so I think that that is the piece you know, to become a whole person is again, that's why as a coach, um, it's not something which is strictly business or strictly in, in someone's personal life. It's, a, it's really a holistic approach to, to someone's person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that is a very kind of um, developed and mature way of looking at growth. It's like you, you focus on the individual and the career. And then it's like, you know, you, you kind of become whole because 90% as you, what well, you said, 90% of the, what limits us or what accelerates us is subconscious and we don't even know it's happening. So, um, so that's really super interesting. So I just want to like touch a little bit on this before we go deep dive, but how has, how do you feel Jungian psychology has played a part in the work that you do? I mean, this is a high level, like in just kind of practical terms. I think the first aspect is always self-awareness and a kind of development. So I use the example of having, you know, we have two legs and we have, have two arms. 
And we would like to have kind of a balanced muscle in all four of those. Um, so in my Stanford talk, I also mentioned this kind of cross of uh, sensing versus intuition and thinking versus feeling. So two, two dimensions. These are, okay, that was obviously developed um, into to Myers-Briggs, but that original type psychology. So in my case, uh, as an example, I'm a very strong thinker. Very, it's a very strong muscle. And entering, you know, entering the workplace at a relatively young age, the feeling, my feeling function was much less developed. And um, obviously that's actually, and also from a, from a brain and neuron perspective, it's been proven now that we have neurons around the heart. So when we talk about feeling, the feeling function, there's a processing center in our heart in the same way as a processing function in our head. And again, so this is the thinking versus feeling. So if we're only in our head and only thinking things through and not taking advantage of that second function, it's again, we're only using one muscle. We're not using the two muscles. So that's one aspect, the thinking versus the feeling. Again, being able to make decisions, evaluate situations based on thinking them through and what are the feelings, what are the emotions, what are the implications on people applying those two things. So that's the one dimension. Those are the two arms. And the two legs, the intuition versus sensing. So uh, sensing is, and again, in my case, I'm stronger on the sensing side. And that is means I like facts and figures. I like collecting the data. I like analyzing and coming to kind of rational decisions, rational conclusions. Again, that's one part, and that, that got me quite far. The other part is intuition. And that's stepping away from the facts and trying to see the big picture, trying to connect the dots to just get a sense for what, what might be the right thing based on, again, your intuition, your gut instinct. And for someone who's like very much into facts and figures, that seems a bit counterintuitive. Oh, people listening to their gut instinct, well, what does that mean? Um, so, but having both, having that ability to, let's say, gather some facts, but then step back from that and see the big picture, think strategically, connect the dots, see theories and patterns, tap into collective wisdom. Um, again, that's, that's another function. So again, imagine you can get all four of those functions working. That's my, been my journey uh, with my coach is trying to tap into more of those other functions, the, the, you know, the, the weaker of those functions in order to just be, a, uh, you know, to make better decisions and, and be a more holistic individual person. That's super interesting, thank you. And actually, um, I did, we did a session for, for the Emirates Group IT on creative thinking. And one of the things that was I touched on um, was feminine versus masculine. Mm. So it was like the masculine is a doer and it's action driven and you know you can build a house but the feminine is more intuitive and, and like synchronicity and creative and when you bring the two together that's where you have this dynamism and magic and I really believe that so it's interesting what you're saying it's Jungian psychology as well I guess the same you know it's like you bring exactly. them together yeah and actually Jung was one of the, the the main ones to to use this word synchronicity and um, again if someone is you know very much a thinker and looking at facts and figures, sensei, like myself, they'll be saying, well, synchronicity, what's that? That doesn't, the data doesn't show that. But someone who's more in, in touch with their feelings and, 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 and intuitive would say, oh, well, okay, well, of course that makes sense. It was meant to be, there was some synchronicity, it was meant to happen, the, the universe, there was some energy. Um, and this is the, again, an interesting part. If you can access both of those and you can be a more, more holistic person. Exactly. And I think, yeah, completely. It's like, and I, and I love that. It's like actually Jung is saying this is pretty much what the spiritual term says, you know, you have this spirit, you have this feminine side, which is synchronicity and flow and intuition, but that within itself isn't enough because if you're just in flow mode, you don't get anything done. So I do believe like you, then you have the, the, that's kind of the more masculine dominant that creates. And so this is super interesting. And I think this is where a lot of people have the struggle. And, and I think even I have this, which is where you either one or the other. And it's super hard to be both. And this idea is that, you know, um, you, you let things happen doesn't work necessarily. You know, you have to have action driven by it, I think. So I'm just going to like, for example, if you just say, okay, I'm, I'm going to allow the universe to create or allow life to happen, that, that's not taking things in our own hands, I don't think. So it's about the bringing the two kind of my, um, parts of the mind together. And I just want to share this quote that you use in your Stanford um um, uh, speech which kind of links to this which is a uh, quote by Romy which says patience is not sitting and waiting it is foreseeing it is looking at the thorn and seeing the rose looking at the night and seeing the day lovers are patient and know that the moon needs time to become full and I think this is really connected to the idea that you're action driven but you're patient you know you 
you kind of, you know, you know the things are going to happen and you have that foresight even before they've happened. So I don't know whether you'd like to share a little bit about what inspired you about that quote in relation to the work you're doing in Jungian theory. Um, and what is this relationship between, you know, foresight and patience? Yeah, it's a great question. So actually the whole term of disciplined opportunism was also in this direction to say, yeah, you need a broad outline of where you want to go to but you need to be able to be patient and open to seeing what the universe is presenting, what opportunities are coming up and being able to read the situation, see where energy is flowing and then go with that flow. So, you know, for example, even after um, doing this speech, I've been able to get some really great publicity just um, sharing that talk with people in my network. And that's a flow of energy which is now happening. And we're having this conversation now because of that. That's not something which could ever been planned ahead. Um, but you have to put certain things out there and then certain energy, certain things will, will come. And I think that's the, the combination. Um, I also meant it in terms of patience is, you know, in this day and age, we, we get very, um, we, don't, we don't have patience, right? So something bad happens, you're in a relationship, it's not working out, you want to, to end it and, and move on. Um, a job is frustrating at work, quit it. We, 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 especially now in this time, I think we've lost a little bit of this patience. And I was on a call with someone today and, he was saying, well, you know, you spent seven years at Lufthansa, even though it's a very difficult culture to work in. Um, and that was patience, right? So that was saying, okay, well, there's things I like and the things I don't like, but being patient, seeing and looking for the opportunities, looking for what you can make the most out of that situation and what you can learn from it. Because in any situation, even if it's, if it's difficult, there's, there's tremendous amounts of learning. And that's, that's this, this patient element. And I give you one example just to, to kind of connect all those dots. Um, so, you know, typically with my coach, I'll explain, you know, what's going on in my life. And, um, and then he'll say, okay, well, have you had any dreams recently, which you'd like to share? And so I'm generally in the process of, in, when I first wake up, trying to spend the first five minutes of noting down a dream. I don't, or I'm not a, always able to do it. And sometimes I might just get an image, but I'd say maybe once a week, I'll get a, a dream, which is memorable and I'll be able to write it down and I'll share it. So in this case, um, I explained that I was you know, frustrated at work and I'm thinking about leaving and you know, it's so difficult. You know, so people tell me about a dream. And then I relayed um, a dream um, where I had bought, uh, bought a house, an old house near where I grew up. Um, and I was, uh, I was in the house and giving a tour um, to, 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 to someone that's an, an old wise man um, who's someone I know giving a tour to the house and it's kind of crumbling. And I say to him, you know, it's just this house is kind of falling apart. I just want to knock it down and start again. And his advice in the dream is I wouldn't do that. And that's, that was a reflection because that is the subconscious telling me your natural instinct is just to knock it down and rebuild. Yeah, but don't do that, just be patient. And this is this piece about patience and this is how you link it through. Your conscious mind might be telling you, oh, this is frustrating. But what's your subconscious telling you? And again, trying to tap into that, read it, understand it, and it just causes you to be causes me to be more kind of reflective on that situation. So that's how you can link through a dream. Um, and I mean, dreams. I mean, we have a whole separate section about dreams, but the the ability to interpret dreams yourself after you've kind of learned a few basics, like whenever whenever you see a house, it's the psyche, um, and any kind of messages like that, they're just they're just trying to tell you what your subconscious is trying to tell yourself. Um, and so, yeah, that was a good example to say, well, okay, that, that's, that's not what I would have thought, um, my, different to what my, my conscious mind was, was telling me to do. Um, and it was, it was the right advice. Amazing, wonderful. And, and I, I love this idea of dream analysis and having, you know, there's a lot of consciousness there that you take time to write your dreams and then you kind of analyze them. And like, if we want to like learn more, because I, I love the idea of like analyzing dreams, I'm sure there's, there's messages there and that we're missing, but if we want to um, like analyze our own dreams and how, what is that, well, how would you say a person can start, um, maybe let's say without having a coach, is there, is there some way that you suggest yeah. you can do that? Um, what I'll do is at the end of the chat, I'll, I can send a link to, a, there's a, a guide, um, it, there's a PDF guide, it's, it takes about half an hour to read it and it's got a framework there of how to interpret dreams. But the, the high level messages is just the first thing when you wake up is having a, um, a notepad next to your bed. Spend that first five minutes when you're kind of still sleepy, still kind of waking up and just write down whatever you can think of. Um, and it's again, like with anything, it's about practice and habit. 
And over time, you'll be able to record and recall more. And then once you have a dream, um, you know, only a person can interpret their own dream actually, because you know, seeing, for example, a certain house or a table will have a different meaning um, to each person. And so trying to, and this guide will give a kind of process to follow to try and self-reflect on what those, those images mean to you as a person. Um, so we'll put that in the chat at the end. I think that's a very helpful start. And again, it's just about practice to, to get into this. Um, and again, it's one of the tools of, of Jung and there are quite a few other tools, but I think, again, it's another kind of spotlight into the subconscious mind. There are other things like people can do, for example, people find expression through music or painting or art. Um, also, there's something called the word association experiment or something else. There, there are other tools as well. Um, and the whole type psychology piece is another piece. Um, but th this is one example I find which it can be helpful to, again, make, make decisions on a broader set of information. Wonderful and wonderful. And I think like um obviously Jung talks about obviously dreams a lot and also we talk about metaphors, like metaphors comes in. And I guess in the dreams there's a lot of metaphors that we need to understand. But it'd be really nice to hear from you, you know, because I'm I'm assuming the dreams don't come so clearly, like your dream wasn't so clear that it meant, you know, be patient at work. You got you saw between the lines of what it meant. Um, but what does Jung say about metaphors and interpreting these metaphors? And if you could give some examples about in, in work, like you know, how we kind of, how could we interpret these metaphors? Yeah, one of the things uh, Jung said is that if you look throughout history, there are kind of common stories, you know, the kind of fairy tales, legends, myths. Um, and these are kind of very common throughout history of, uh, of these kind of regular um, patterns. Um, it's not necessarily something I personally give a lot of time to, but my, my coach is always kind of saying, okay, well, you've had, for example, a collection, if you met three people, there's the kind of, what that might mean, this kind of stories, there might be constellations. So if, if there's a certain scene which is created, it might resonate to some ancient story or a biblical story or any other story. Um, and so it's a kind of, if it's, if it's a common pattern. Now there's an interesting, an interesting guy called Joseph Campbell who came after Jung and developed something called the hero's journey. And that's also very interesting because this also talks to say, there are common patterns of stories, uh, again, throughout history, and um, everyone's own life actually also resembles that kind of common story. Um, and for example, Joseph Campbell, um, he looked at different types of film scripts out there, like for example, the Star Wars trilogy is exactly, uh, Star Wars movies are exactly following that kind of storyline. Most actually, um, most films and scripts actually follow this kind of uh, a similar Kind of journey and um, there were, in the hero's journey it starts with a kind of call to action um, the, the person meets a mentor they then cross the threshold um, and they go through some kind of trial and tribulation um, there's a kind of death and rebirth um, and then they kind of re-emerge into the world with a new energy so this kind of a process so that's a kind of script structure i remember after filming my stanford speech um, Jonathan, who introduced, who connected us, said to me, oh, your life story sounds just like the hero's journey. And actually everyone's life story sounds a bit like the hero's journey, meaning they're gonna, they meet mentors throughout their time. Um, and there's, there are messages there for people to improve themselves. Um, and how do people respond to the call? Um, so actually everyone is, is getting that call. It just, uh, we need to be available to pick up the phone. Mm. Completely, I completely agree. And I've done some work on the hero's journey and uh, I know Jonathan has, and I think that's why he's mentioned it. But I think, I, and I love it, but I think, and I just want to highlight this, I feel like the hero's journey is, is a linear, I know it's a circle, but you know, it's like, you know, you go through seven steps and then you become triumph. But do you not feel, and I think, you know, there are dips in this, you know, as, as human beings, it's not this beautiful, yeah. like we go down and up and down and up. And then when you get to the end of the journey, a new journey starts. So. There are going to be lows in that journey where we think, okay, I give up and I, that's it. You know, I'm not there. But actually, that's going to be the thing, the catalyst that pushes you up. And then when you're up, you come down. It, it, it's a yeah. process. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. Everyone goes through this period of this trial and this setback. And that's where the learning is. That's where the gold is, right? So to go through that and get that learning and rebound, rebuild, reinvent, um, this is exactly what the hero's journey is about. This is one of the key, key aspects of it. And there will be multiple setbacks. And that's, again, that's that cycle. And there'll also be multiple mentors, multiple guides along the way 
Mm. So, so, yeah, and I completely I've realized that actually setbacks can be opportunities for growth and as, as they are in the hero's journey. And, and I think it's interesting that you're sharing this because I think in, in the world we have, you know, certain people who believe in this philosophy of life. And I often find that they're not in the business world. I mean, maybe I'm generalizing, but they're not in the business. They're kind of in the yoga world and they're spiritual and they're like, I'm devoting myself to like my, my self-development, but they don't enter the world of business. You know, they're kind of like, and they're in the fringes. Um, and then you have people in the world of business who are like there and they're highly successful, but they don't enter this world of self-development. So having the two is, is rare. And I think that's what Yogi Pranas is really about. It's like bringing these two together because they shouldn't be separate. It makes no sense. But for some reason, they're kind of separate. And, and I notice people who are spiritual or in the yoga world, you know, they, it's, they really struggle in this world of business and entrepreneurship you know, um, but they're very good at talking about feelings and emotions. And then people who are very successful in the business world, not all the time, but often, they very struggle with their feelings. It's very So I just want to know um, from you, what do you think enabled you to kind of bring, marry these two worlds together? And how can maybe, what, what, how can we all do that in our own way? Well, again, that's, that's it's a very interesting point because when I, when I first joined Emirates, um, one of my SVP colleagues uh, gave me a book do I have on my bookshelf? Uh, I've, I've lent it out, but um, it's called Snakes in Suits. And it's all about uh, narcissists in the workplace. Um, and actually it's true of, of every big company, um, actually companies in general. So not, the word narcissism, it's, it's a very loaded word in a way, but let's call it selfish people who maybe be low in empathy. But these are the people who are the most driven, they're most interested in power, and they're willing to do whatever yeah, it takes. Um, so if you look at people, for example, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, obviously people in politics are very political, are often uh, highly narcissistic or high narcissist personality disorder. Um, in general, it's supposed to affect around 10 to 20% of the population. But again, in senior positions, it's, it's much higher. In my experience, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, double that. And again, it's because the people in senior positions are the ones who have the drive, the energy, and the willingness to do whatever it takes to get there. And so they're, they're really putting themselves first, their careers first, and they're striving ahead. And then that means obviously that those are the people who often end up being in those senior leadership positions. And as you said, they're generally uh, less empathetic. Um, there are two types of narcissists actually. Um, there are the charmers, who are kind of charming because they, they're kind of wanting to get something out of you. Although the bullies, the people who make you feel bad or put you down, um, those are kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, so, so actually in, in pretty much most of the companies I've worked in, again, you see the, this as a very dominant personality type. And that could be a reason why, uh, you know, we talk about personalities being you know, drawn to the corporate world that could be a reason for why you know, your, your observation around um, you know, a different type that you're seeing uh, in, in, in the people you're you know, on this call and, and, and dealing with. Um, so for me, this has been, again, a very interesting thing I've explored with my coach to understand, um, to identify these personality types. And the word, again, NASA sounds like very negative. So it's to say, you know, people who are kind of very self-driven, um, and find ways to be able to work with them, identify them. And you need a different kind of uh, approach in, in terms of interacting with those types. And, and just, again, being like very aware um, of how they're acting. So for example, if you're trying, you know, I had this situation at Lufthansa, you've got a, you know, a, a board of you know, five people you need to convince of something. And if you know, one of them is, has high, uh, high uh, NPD, narcissist personality disorder, um, then um, they're going to be thinking very much through, okay, what, what does this project or idea mean for them and their career? And obviously, if that means they're going to lose something, then that's going to be, they're going to put themselves before the company. So even if you may be coming into that meeting, you may be thinking, okay, this is the best thing the company has to do this. It's obvious. But if someone is going to lose out as a result, they're going to act in a completely different way. So it's trying to be aware of some of those energy flows uh, and seeing some of those personal incentives. And being able to navigate that. 
I, I love that actually. I love that. I, and I think that's, and I think this is such an important part about the more we're self-aware about ourselves, the more we understand other people. And that really helps us because we don't, we don't live in silos and we don't work in silos and we have to navigate all these complicated personalities. So the more we learn about ourselves and our own ability, our own personality, then we can engage with these different personality types better. Um, and I think, you know, what you're describing, Sadiq, is, you know, you're, you're, you're like a change agent. So I had this conversation uh, yesterday with someone and we said, you know, you could, being this kind of person who wants to have change and, and you know, create transformation, you, sh, you know, it doesn't make sense to be outside of the system. You have to be inside, You're, you know, like you can't be outside telling the system it's wrong and you want to change it. That doesn't work. So we do need more people who think in this holistic way within big organizations to shift things. But yeah, an example. draining for those people. Yeah. Yeah. No, and another example of that, again, maybe a more practical tool is, is Myers-Briggs because it's obviously one of the most famous, which again, it's, it has exactly the same say, framework which, which Jung developed, but uh, it's, it's very relatable with people. So for example, um, I mentioned that board at Lufthansa, and I remember having a conversation to the CEO and saying, look, this is your personality type on the dimensions, and this is someone else's who you're struggling with. And on every dimension, you're the opposite. You know, you're more introvert, he's more extrovert. Um, you're more uh, sensei, he's more intuitive. You're more thinking, he's more, and you just go down, it's like, ah, okay. So, the, so having that kind of a conversation to explain how they're seeing the world in very different ways, for him was very eye-opening. Eye so I find Myers-Briggs is a great one in the workplace to be able to have those conversations, to understand people's preferences in working style, to be able to engage them in, in their preferred way. And also thinking about team composition, you know, having a balance of those kind of skills and understanding how people uh, interact. So I find actually Myers-Briggs is probably one of the most easy to use union tools. Um, and it's something I've used in every team that I've worked with. Amazing, wonderful. And I think, you know, I'm sure we could talk about this all, all, all day. And I know we want to touch on archetypes and lots of things. So um, I'd be really nice now. Um, we've got about 20 minutes left. If we have some Q&A with the audience, because um, I've said a broad, I hope, overview. But I think let's maybe go deep dive into some of the questions that the audience has. So I don't know who would like to, I know Imi, uh, Sarah, Hongbo, um, and uh, I um, had some questions particular. Do you want to share those questions? I don't know if Sarah, Sarah, you want to talk about what, discuss a little bit more about archetypes? Hello, sorry, it's a hot mess here in London at the moment. Um, yeah, it was um, interesting to hear um, your thoughts and thank you for sharing those, um, particularly around um, like Myers-Briggs as a tool. Um, I found it helpful in understanding that like really like big picture on like where you can fit because um one thing I do like about I think there's a website I think it's 16 personalities yeah you all the data on like how, like where that's you I fit like you are in like the five percent of people that think like that or so so and so forth but um I'd be interested to know um if you've like delved more into like the archetypes um and for like masculinity and feminine as well and whether you use those uh, rather than the Myers-Briggs because I find it a bit um a bit abstract it's like going into a room and people go oh I'm, I'm an ENFP like sometimes it can a bit be like oh I'm like an RTUD2 like it just becomes a bunch of letters it's never interesting maybe so, yeah I just explain a bit about archetypes for for the general audience so archetypes are pre-existent forms they're kind of primordial images or roles that we see in society which are very universal um, the everyday realities like mother, father, husband, wife, the kind of everyday archetypes. Are, there are kind of 12 very common ones. Um, mother, lover, uh, jester, magician, hero, ruler, creator, sage, innocent, explorer, rebel, just to give you some of the kind of more common ones. And um, so archetypes, these are symbolic images which we unconsciously understand and they're kind of roles we, which we see in the workplace or in society. So an example of one of that, one of the archetypes is, is ruler. And on every archetype, there's a kind of positive whole dimension. And on the other side of this extreme is a kind of, let's say corrupted, more negative version or a, a complex of that. So on the ruler, the, the, the kind of positive 
version is a kind of responsible, responsible ruler driving for success, um, you know, in the interests of the people being ruled. The, the opposite of that is the tyrant or the bully, the corrupted version of a, of a ruler. So every archetype has a positive and a negative one. Um, another one is the, the, the sage, the, the, the wise person. So we can, people can fall into this to be, you know, be the kind of wise person in the team, the one people go to who's been probably has the most experience. And again, positive version is this old wise person. The, um, the corruption of that is the person who thinks they know best um, and more of the maverick, so not constructive. Um, another one, another role people can fall into is rebel. Again, positive element of that is someone who's outspoken and radical. The, the negative corrupted version of that is someone who complains behind closed doors and so not in a constructive way. Um, I'll give one more. So the, um, the mother, the caregiver, that's the, the positive is the unconditional love, the compassion element. The, the corrupted version is can be the victim or someone who's inadequate. So anyway, to give you a little sample. And so in, in every workplace you see that another one is jester. You'll think that the person who's like the kind of the one who likes to joke around. Um, so you'll, you'll see these again in family structures, in, in the workplace. These are kind of roles which people fall into. And there is a, there's a test you can also do on this to see which one you have a more dominant one for yourself. Um, this is a whole area which I've been getting into more recently, and I think it's, it's very interesting. Now, my question is about archetype building on what Sarah was saying. Um, I, I guess one of the things I want to connect archetypes with what you were mentioning earlier about Joseph Campbell, and there's a well-known Hollywood theory now that's coming out, especially in Marvel movies, where they try to make villains based on the ethos that every villain thinks they're the hero of their own story. Mm. And I wanted to kind of connect that loosely with not only Joseph Campbell's hero journey, but also with archetypes and the idea of corrupted versus the non-corrupted. From a Jungian point of view, or from an objective society point of view where we value each other's work and everything, one that I'm sure there's a separation between what Jung would say is our own sense of uh, fulfillment versus society's sense of what our fulfillment should be. So there's already a line that separates what I think is corruption or not corruption in my sense of self. My own journey should define my sense of whether or not it's a success or not, or I'm happy or not. But when we mention corruption and we use terms for corruptions and we describe what is corruptions and you gave a list of the trickster and the mother and everything, my question is twofold. One, where do you place the, the lines between corruptions and non-corruption? Is it within our own journey to decide, um, which so many psychoanalysts tend to focus on, or is it within the society, or is there something cosmological about goodness and badness that we're all connected, because archetypes are universal. Is the lines between corruption and not corruption in itself universal? And the second question is, is we, we're made to be the, the charmer or the bully in the workplace. Like you mentioned, success, sociopaths, uh, being CEOs, it's usually a requirement for the business world to be of a certain characteristic to drive an industry, to take risks, to dominate competition and everything. So uh, in, in addition to my correct question about who gets to decide whether it's corruption is, whether I'm corrupted or not, uh, an add-on question to that, if you could answer it, is how does that fit into how we work in a sense of how we actually at times have to be corrupted, even though we don't want to be corrupted, and how sometimes we don't want to be corrupted, but we are corrupted by our very nature because it could be part of our journey to say I'm this is who I am. You, you call it corruption, I don't, and so forth and so forth. So, sorry, it's a convoluted question. Pick from it whatever you like uh, to answer, but uh, my question really is about the lines between corruption and non-corruption in archetypes and, and in the hero's journey. Well, I think, yeah, this whole world is full of opposites, right? We know night because we have day. Uh, we know good because we have bad. In the same way is with the archetypes, we know one being the opposite of the other. So what the, the kind of 
complete version, um, we understand it because of the opposite of it. Um, so for example, one of, the, one of the archetypes is the regular guy and it's the desire to fit in and be accepted. So again, like this is human intuition. We all generally have this desire to fit in. The opposite of that is to feel excluded. And you may have someone, for example, this might be a complex for someone, meaning, you know, during, for example, during their childhood, they may have at school or through their family situation, maybe got bullied or just felt excluded from the, the siblings or from the, the, the school community. And so this then is in their subconscious. Um, and so obviously that's then a kind of complex built. And if someone doesn't address it, um, then when they get into the workplace, they're going to react uh, in a very sensitive way anytime they're excluded. Oh, why was I not included on that email? And they're gonna get very emotional and come after you because you excluded them. So anytime you see someone overact in the workplace, it's generally a kind of complex or a corruption, maybe of, of one of the archetypes. Um, and so there should be, I mean, I would hope that, again, because of this nature of the opposites, we should be identified a positive versus a negative. Again, um, because of this, this way of thinking about complexes. Um, again, a complex is anytime someone reacts, overreacts in an emotional or negative way, um, because of something which generally happened in their, in their childhood. That's generally where the complexes are programmed. I think that's just, sorry to interrupt, Sadiq, but that's a really interesting one. And Taru, we, we know someone that, um, obviously we don't, we're not gonna name names, who would, would just flip if you don't include them in an email. They get really, really upset. And I think, you know, then we see, yes, it's a, it's a now obviously there's a you know, complex from childhood, but then um, my question would be like, how do you, do, like, what do you do in that situation? Like, how do you use the archetype to manage that person? And I, sorry, and then you can go back to Amy's question. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the, the it's hard to say. Well, you know, I think that's a complex, and you know, you should reflect. You know, let's talk about your childhood. Obviously, that's what you would need to say. But um, I think maybe it's easier to have that conversation in relation to your own self, and say, where do you notice yourself overreacting to a certain situation? Um, so, for example, do you find yourself? feeling, falling into a victim role, you know, why is this happening to me? Or do you fall into this imposter syndrome of feeling inadequate? Um, you know, if someone um, ends up with addictions um, or, or feels out of touch with their feelings, it can be a corruption of the lover uh, archetype. Um, so I think it's, it starts, it's easier to talk about diagnosing yourself and catching yourself. So the, the whole process of individuation is, is this awareness, bringing transparency to complexes. Complexes are automatic behavior. So as soon as you find yourself realizing you're doing it, um, this will actually start correcting itself. I give you an example. Um, I noticed that I automatically um, make people feel bad. So for example, let's say I've arranged to go for dinner with someone. Um, I show up 15 minutes late. The other person shows up 20 minutes late. My natural reaction would be to say, well, I've been waiting here, you're late, you know, making the person feel bad. Um, and I diagnosed or reflected, this comes from in my childhood. Um, my father particularly had this kind of bullying narcissist approach of making people feel bad, making people feel inadequate. Um, which again is the corruption of the, the, the caregiver function. Um, because the caregiver is kind of unconditional love. Um, that someone who makes someone feel inadequate, especially in their childhood, that's conditional love, you know, I love you only if you do certain things in my way that I tell you. So that's a kind of complex which I developed and I didn't even realize that I was doing this automatically with everyone, making people feel bad. Oh, you, you made me show up uh, and now you're not here and the meeting's canceled and why am I here waiting? So again, just catching it. So once you're aware of it, actually that's the work done because you're gonna start noticing and catching yourself and it will start healing itself and you'll stop doing it. So this, this is, again, that's, that's for me has been the, the most interesting part. One of the most interesting parts is because it sounds like, oh, there's so much work to do, all this stuff, complexes, and, but actually it's just, just awareness. It's, the most important thing is awareness and these automatic behavior that you find that yourself doing. Brilliant. I can just, yeah. 
Thanks, Thanks. Yeah, that, that, So, I mean, it does answer the question. It does answer it in a way that really, corruption really is an individual journey, so to speak. It's, it was your complex that affected, made you out of alignment, let's say, I'm gonna use that word, out of sync with yourself. Obviously, if you can find balance between these complexes, you can resolve it. What, I'm, what I tend to experience a lot, however, and maybe you can advise me in this and advise us all, is that I meet a lot of senior creative types now uh, who strangely and oddly have become so self-aware with Jungian archetypes that they now integrate it into their own self-reflections. And I've had conversations where somebody says like this, they say, I don't want to be the bully, but I have to become the bully. So they, so they're aware that they are going to put themselves in a situation to succeed where they have to separate themselves from their happiness, from their sense of self. They have to become a complex. They have to become corrupted to succeed in work or something. And a lot of times, you know, as globalized worlds are and how corporations are, you're not really going to become the kind of CEO that's also the happy, content person as well. You, it's very rare that you're going to say, right, I'm content and I'm making the world a better place and I'm globalizing across the globe. It's, it's some, most of the times it goes against each other's nature. So what kind Basically, of advice would you give? Power to corrupts, right? As in, there's, there's an association of power. People who want power, yeah. you know, obviously are, are driven by that motive. And but they don't want it. In this example, they didn't want it. For example, he's become so, these conversations are becoming so self-aware with these with new generation of people who've grown up knowing the, the kind of Hollywood version of Jungians and, 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 and psychoanalysis and all that. But what I'm dealing with now is, is kind of like, I don't want power, but I need power. <laughs> I need power to succeed. I've, I've realized the mechanics of the world. I need to become something I'm not. I've spent my life becoming happy. And now I wanna move from middle, this usually happens between middle management and senior management, succession training as it's called for a lot of people. You want to help someone succeed, go up, but you'd be like, the first thing is you want to pierce through that middle management thing where you can just say, right, I'm following orders, nothing to do with me, to I am now responsible for making the bad decisions. That mindset, I now have to take on uh, a different mindset. What kind of advice would you give to that kind of environment that we're now living in where somebody wanted to move into that? They don't want power, but they know they need power. They don't want to be corrupted, but they know they... To some point, they're going to be corrupted. I think that's a really good point. Sorry, that's that? a really good point, which is like you know, um, what like for example, let's say you want to create change and transformation in your organization, so you know you have to play this game and get. I think that as I'm just kind of like trying to maybe paraphrase what Amy says. You, so you know, like I think all of well, I know me, and I'm not at all focused on power, but if you kind of know that you need to get up to create the change, what do you do? Because you know, like how do you play this game? I think that's quite Amy's question, is it? Yeah. You yeah. summed it up as you, you, as you do. <laughs> I think the best is around being self-aware and communicating to, to people around. But I think, you know, people can often get caught into these archetypes when they, you know, didn't necessarily set out to be in one of those. So I give you a personal example of that is uh, during my time at Lufthansa, um, I was working for the CEO. Um, and it's very common that the ruler archetype is close to the, the wizard magician archetype. And when you're close to power and you have that kind of ear of a CEO, um, you know, people can get very uh, suspicious of that. Um, so they, you know, for example, in Germany, they started using this word Saubra, magician, which only now when learning about archetypes that I realized, like, why would people be calling me a magician? Um, and again, the, the kind of positive aspect of that archetype is someone who can transform using intuition. They can be close to the ruler to advise them and guide kind of, let's say, behind, um, let's say, not, not the front and center of power, but the advisor to someone who's um, uh, in power. And that's quite an interesting position to be in, right? So that can be a little bit of less corrupting or less, let's say, a way of using power, but not exposing yourself to the crossfires of power. Um, but the corruption of that is... Um, you know, someone can really be like this kind of wizard, you know, magician, if you imagine, again, myths, legends, there were always these kind of uh, sorcerers, you know, around kings, um, 
who you know could use that kind of power for bad um, to influence um, a, a ruler in a certain way because they're a little bit detached and, and hidden um, that they can also fall into a trap. So I think this relationship once again between two of the archetypes there is quite interesting as well. The Dick Cheney effect. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's self-aware of where are you in this and what archetype are you playing and the, and the negative and the positive of that. And I think that leads really, so there's two more, I think two more questions and we only got about four minutes. I know that um, someone had a question about staying calm and, and, and making results uh, while thinking about the results. We're gonna definitely get there, but I just wanna go on that the topic today was about decision-making in a way. So the overall arch making, you know, how do you use union theory for decision-making? Um, and I know we've touched on it on certain points, which is, you know, intuition and, and like, you know, the two parts of your brain working together. But I think if um, if you could, uh, Siddiq, just sum up for us in a couple of minutes, like, like you know, if you're making a difficult decision, and so many of us have this where even just like, where do you book a holiday or not? Or like, you know, do you take that promotion? Do you take that direction or that direction? Like how in a very simple way could we use union theory to help us with making decision-making? But also the important thing is like, you know, um, not allowing negative influence to come into that decision-making process. Okay, I'll go back to the kind of mix between Jungian typology and Myers-Briggs. So we talked about two of the dimensions. I'll bring in a couple other, the other two dimensions. Um, so in, uh, introversion, introversion versus extroversion. But in my case, I'm naturally more introverted, meaning I'll make those kind of decisions on my own, thinking them through. And again, to make a better decision, um, I now try to do that with someone or with a group to make better decisions. So again, get, you know, um, use a more extroverted approach to process externally and build in additional uh, information to make a decision. And the other one is judging versus perceiving. Um, and you'll see this very often in relationships, one can be more than the other, which can work very well, but it can also lead to conflict. And judging versus perceiving is, is people who like to be well-planned, organized, versus the types that like to be spontaneous. And obviously now you make an example of planning a trip um, is, you know, if you've got, if you're trying to think about planning a trip, you know, you may have, an, you know, one person may be more thinking about planning ahead, being organized, book everything. The other one might like the freedom, the spontaneity. And again, what I would encourage people in this, context is to try and tap into the, the other function. You know, you'll naturally like to be well-planned. Well, try a trip where you just keep things very spontaneous. You fly into one place, you fly out the other place, you've got three weeks and you just figure it out. So again, this can create a whole different set of experiences, which can be very enriching. Um, and again, you can apply this in, in corporate context as well. So I would say we all, you know, we're all naturally right-handed, left-handed. We all have these natural ways of doing certain things. And to build muscle strength, I would encourage all of us to try and use the other non-natural uh, muscle. Okay, wonderful. And I love that. And, and I've heard that many times as well. Like, you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to be more spontaneous, take a low, do something that's low risk, just test it out and then build your muscle in that. But I think we've just got um, two quick questions and we've got like three minutes left. So I think Hongbo has a question. Um, and then also... Uh, if we could just go back to um, Harivan's question and really quick, maybe, um, Sadiq, what would be your um, re uh, response to how do you remain calm while doing work without thinking about the results? So, you know, how do you stay calm um, when you, without worrying about the results when you're doing your work, basically? Yeah, I would say throughout my career, because I've been naturally more a thinker, I haven't given sufficient attention to my feelings. So. The good side of that, it means I stay calm under pressure because I'm not like worrying about how people are going to react um, and, and kind of caught in feelings. I'm just kind of sticking to the journey. I, okay, I plan this and I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow through and, and kind of see things through. So it makes me very good at executing, but there's obviously some, some damage along the way from that. Um, I think so. The, the, this, that's my normal approach. Like to basically, let's say, suppress feelings and stress but what's very interesting now in this more self-awareness time i'm realizing the, the negative part of that because you know for example if i uh if i go to, if i go if i do an interview for something and i really care or i deliver a speech and my actually i did this ted talk in front of 600 people in berlin and i do so many speeches like why would i be nervous but i was on the stage and then suddenly i was nervous and my usual approach is just to ignore it um and i thought i can just kind of suppress it but actually um, for people watching that in the first five minutes, you can hear the tone of my voice is actually quite different. Um, so 
actually now it's just trying to be more aware and not not trying to suppress it and ignore it but trying to integrate it and there are different exercises to do that but the approach of just kind of ignoring uh stress um and anxiety um actually it's self-deceptive um and i've noticed that now a lot more in, in circles i was being aware of my nervousness rather than being well i don't get nervous i'm not stressed um and actually kind of deceiving myself uh and and so this is also part of my own development wonderful thank you for sharing that and, and i love that and i think that's so true that you know, we can't hide the feelings if we are nervous and anxious so we can't say i'm not nervous this you know because it, it just kind of festers up and actually um for the question um herring buns we do talk about meditation a lot so you must join one of our uh, conversations on meditation and how we use meditation to keep calm um and presence while we're dealing with you know difficult situations so um yeah i'll send the link and join our whatsapp group and um peter who's our meditation guide he does weekly meditations as well um and talking about how it helps with, with, with what you're saying so definitely i think meditation and just staying present and calm as much as possible um thank you so much Shalik, for sharing your experience as well um really great point and then the last one hongbo um has a question a really quick question yeah, sure. Thank you, Mia. I've been I've been really confused with myself with so many questions, but I know the opportunity is so precious to ask Sandeep only one. So um, I will come to uh, the, the one and only. Um, Sandeep, let me take a little bit diversion from the conversation today. Essentially, just in terms of, um, you know, quoting what you said from your TED Talk, how would you create the environment that is a graduation photo-like rather than a passport photo-like, especially when we are pushing innovation within the organization from an outsider perspective. For instance, from our perspective, we are pushing innovations in airlines around the world. How do you create that type of environment, especially when you have to deal with different departments in order to launch something? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think timing is everything. So one of the benefits of experiences is, is trying to pitch different ideas, is seeing what resonates, where's there's natural energy flow, and to keep trying at different points. And so it requires patience, it requires reading the situation, um, but you need to have a kind of broader list of ideas and keep trying to pitch them at different times, depending on, on where there's appetite. So I, I think for me, it's, it's more about this long game and not coming in just, you know, with you know, a lot of energy around certain topics where there's no kind of natural home for. So I think that's, that's probably the biggest learning I've had is, is bringing ideas to the organization, testing them, but, you know, being sensitive to the organization when they're ready for those ideas. I hope you enjoyed this um, podcast recording of our webinar with Sadiq Giliani. If you have any comments or feedback, please do reach out to me at Yogipreneurs. Sadiq does some amazing content on his Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, so please do go and follow him and look forward to hearing your thoughts on, on what you found um, most interesting from this session or what you'd like to see more of um, or hear more of. Look forward to hearing from you.